everyone, welcome to Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. I'm Becky Bates, an analyst here with the firm, and today I'm joined by Martin. Hello. Kelly. Hi. And Chen. Hello. We're going to be talking about AI, um, and in particular, the recent launch of Google's AI assistant, Duplex. So Kelly, if you want to take us away by giving us an overview of what's been going on. Yeah, so quite recently, Google demoed their AI assistant duplex at their I.O. conference, and it was quite popular in social media with the, the video doing the rounds on the various platforms. And I think it was generally the ability to make phone calls with the person on the other side having no idea they weren't speaking to an actual human being. That was so exciting. Uh, but it's actually demonstrated quite a lot about what is going on in the, current, in the AI sector and the different paths that different firms are taking. So Google is taking the customer-facing approach, so that's why Duplex is so popular probably on social media. And then Microsoft, in contrast, is going the business side, so they're going to try and improve general efficiencies in day-to-day -day workplace operations. So I think the technology was pretty cool with the Duplex, if you want to give us an overview of kind of the big changes they've made there. So I'm not a technological expert, but the aspects that were so impressive were the inclusion of subvocals, mimicry of the person on the other line. So subvocals are just ums and ahs, a bit of incorrect grammar, and then also the ability to understand general confusing human conversations. I think it was the second call to the restaurant that was the most impressive because I think the average person wouldn't have been able to really complete that phone call because the person on the other end seemed to be really confused about what time the person was trying to make a reservation for, how many people, but uh, Duplex managed to get through it. Uh, of course there's been some criticism about or some questioning of whether or not this was staged, how many times it took them to get it right, but generally it looks like it's there's potential for having to do the day-to-day -day tasks and also for possible mass calling. <laughs> That's really cool. So um, I guess you just touched on my next question, but what do we think the applications of this are going to be? So for duplex specifically, I think uh, for the average person, it'll take out a bit of the day-to-day -day tasks that you would have to do. So making reservations, calling other people, making appointments generally. Not that that's a huge part of my life at the moment, but I can imagine that for businesses having to, if you could have an AI and then they could interact with the clients, it leaves your staff with a lot more time to do the actual more value-adding aspects of a business. But then you can also see the same with Microsoft Cortana, that if you take out the lots of manual work and the uh, lots of the manual work and the things that take a lot of time and a lot of brain power, you leave a lot more space for your employees to do more exciting things. So it sounds like it's going to replace a lot of customer center staff in the future. Yeah, I can imagine it would, that call centers would essentially become obsolete. Um, though I'm not quite sure how quickly that will be happening. So Martin, I know you've had a bit of experience in the kind of health tech space. Um, have you got any views on applications of this technology there? Um, in regards to duplex, I think it could be useful um, as a therapist. Um, I believe uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some artificial intelligence. Um, yeah, TESS. It's a Canadian yeah. project. Yeah. So TESS is uh, essentially a mental health chatbot based in Canada. And the emphasis is on accessibility 24-7 and the ability to talk to 
Chat Brothers uh, program to be like a therapist. So it bridges the gap between when a person actually needs help and when they're able to get an appointment with a therapist in real life. Okay, so Martin, how widespread do you think that might become? Well, I can see something like Duplex acting as a halfway house between a chatbot and a real doctor. I think a lot of people's criticism of artificial intelligence at the moment is that, um, especially in the healthcare space, is that doctors, um, although rather it lacks the tactile um, element that doctors have where they can actually talk to you face to face, they can reassure you, um, they can also obviously feel you and um, in some conditions that's obviously necessary. However, with a lot of things like therapy and um, I think a lot of the kind of day-to-day -day health concerns that take up GP's times, like people complaining about the flu or a minor headache, um, being reassured by artificial intelligence could actually save a lot of time. Yeah, that's really interesting. So potentially some kind of screening um, solution. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So what we're kind of coming back to is kind of the accessibility of it, I think especially with tests, it's that affordability and the, the access that's the big deal. Do we think that's really where the value add is? And if we do, is it worth investing so much like Google have done in making duplex human or can a chatbot like Tess that takes away that speaking and auditory focus fulfill the needs? I think the pursuing of the human aspect reveals a lot about what the general public perception is of artificial intelligence because the duplex call was very divisive and some people thought it was very, very exciting and others were horrified by the prospects of it. And then when you get artificial intelligence that's a bit more robot-like but has very, uh, very useful real-life applications, it's exciting in a less divisive way, I think. Um, and it, probably also adds more value in a substantial way to the economy because it does free up real people's times for more complex jobs or jobs that involve more emotional intelligence or a little bit more subjectivity. Um, but I think it also comes with risks. For instance, in, um, in medical sector, there are a lot of disputes in China because of misdiagnosis. So if you uh, use a chatbot to provide um, advice to patients and when there is a miscommunication who's going to be accountable for that mistake? Well I would like to know about who will, who would oversee um, the conversations between these artificial intelligences and could it lead to information miscommunications kind of very rapidly spiraling as these calls assume will be, be very efficient and, and information spread very quickly. Yeah that's, I think that's a really valid concern. I think also one of the things we've seen in a similar topic of being able to do so many calls is that with this type of voice software, essentially you could create any person's voice. And some of it's done willingly, so Google is going to be adding John Legend's voice to the roster of choices that you can have for duplex. Uh, but I can imagine that the, the security concerns or just the possible fallout from being able to create false recordings or false phone calls that appear live to a person on the other side be quite significant. And I think you might, we might also be seeing a global divergence in how these kinds of technologies will be perceived. Uh, because recently coming in is the GDPR regulations in Europe. And while I don't really know much about how that would impact um, mass calling specifically, I can imagine that the different approaches, so a more regulation-based one in Europe, and then the recent US announcement, they're going to be very hands-off to artificial intelligence and then especially in contrast to the situation in China where they're going to be rolling out the social credit system that it's going to become very different around the world. 
Yeah, sure. Chan, do you want to give us a bit more on the um, social credit system? It's a plan in the coming few years by the government to give a social rating for each individual in China. And it's not only based on your financial status, it's also based on your friend circle. So, for instance, if your friend did something bad, it will affect your social rating. And then based on that rate, you can... Um, for instance, get more loans from the bank, or it, it will appear on your social media page. So there will be a lot of impact on individuals in the future. That's really interesting, especially with the friend links as being the centre of Facebook's recent troubles with Cambridge Analytica. Um, I think one of the, linking back to the, the creating people's voices, that's a really central concern from my perspective. I mean, we've had fake news seemingly forever. You know, Stalin was a master of using photo, uh, photo editing to make himself look bigger than he is. Um, but things now where, you know, you can use photographs of people to create online a video of them that's a complete fallacy. Um, or you can use John, pretend that John Legend is calling your friend very easily. Um, yeah, it certainly opens up a new side. Um, so I guess in light of all that, how do we think this is going to play out in terms of security concerns? Well, lots of uh, challenger banks that are only digital use cutting-edge know-your-customer software that allows um, you to access the app through your face, fingerprints, even um, new technology now like your, the shape of your hand or even your earlobe. One of the uh, new areas that these KYC companies are looking at is also voice recognition. So if um, artificial intelligence will be able to replicate people's voices very accurately, I'm sure those companies will be looking for ways on how to improve their software to detect humans um, versus machines. So then I guess you get the, the converse effect of you both get an improved security so that you're more easily identifiable as an individual, but it also means you have been identified as an individual and you, that data has once again been collected on you. I think that's a really nice way of putting it, yeah. Also it brings about the question of identity because um, we, we know ourselves by voice, by our fingerprints, um, by biometrics, but in the future if all of these data can be replicated by machines, then you don't know what you should trust who you are. Yeah, I think another thing we've, we've been talking about um, as a concern for the security side is um, particularly around use of data and mass calling. When you have a physical call center, it's quite easy to identify it, you know, its operations. If you can just access this AI from your phone in your bedroom, you know, you, it's very hard to legislate, you know, who's calling who, who's putting out these mass campaigns. How accessible do, do we think this AI will become? You know, will it be possible? for individuals in their own um, endeavours to, to use it to reach mass audiences? I think it will become very accessible. I think technology over the last 20, 30 years has shown that things that were once the only accessible to the military or very wealthy individuals is now accessible to everyone. And I don't, and especially from Google's point of view, they want to market this to their customers, everyone using Android phones or even just the Google web browser. I think it will become widely available very soon. I think also based on the media around it, that's what they're aiming for. Like the whole design of the I.O. conference is essentially aimed to get as many public members able to see it as soon as possible, so they're already thinking about it. And when you compare that with, I had not heard of Microsoft Cortana until I was researching on this topic, but I can imagine that it's going to become more significant to the workplace than Duplex might, but it's not as big of a media frenzy. And I think only by um, by getting more people to use the software, 
that's how they improve themselves because they they collect data and they can learn while consumers use the app. Does Duplex work in other languages or is it only available in English at the moment? Uh, I'm not sure but I can imagine that just demographically if they were looking to target global consumers they'd have to integrate other languages but I think we've also seen this in uh, comedic skits and then also I don't know if you've had it yourself when you try to use different AIs having an accent can sometimes make it very difficult um, so I can imagine that it could exclude certain groups that if you don't speak a language that AI is has a large data set for the service that you'll actually be receiving is not as good as what most people will be receiving and that can then of course be fixed if you introduce more diverse data sets but that is something that has to be actively pursued as well. I think another thing kind of circling back a bit um, to the regulating data um, and China is a really interesting counter to this but if we think AI becomes accessible and it's accessible across the world it's accessible to individuals do we think that from a regulatory point of view governments and international bodies will have to be policing the internet a lot more than they currently do and they'll have to become more involved in actively monitoring what people are doing. For example with GDPR, um, if someone is collecting, if someone who's not part of an established company is collecting data and managing to call people using a chatbot and AI just from their phone or you know from whatever platform they're using, will the government have to be much more involved in actively looking for individuals doing that? I would imagine so, especially if we're looking at Europe with GDPR, um, but I think that also then would hinge on the individual's ability to recognise that they're being mass called. Uh, it's a bit of a speculative point, but I can imagine if the technology is so advanced that you can't recognise it's a real person, you might just think you've been called up by an individual and then not recognise it's part of a mass calling scheme. On from that, I did read uh, comments on the various videos uh, showing the duplex uh, technology and one of the uh, most popular um, points against it was that people felt the, uh, the AI should have announced that it was an AI when, it, when the conversation began and I could see potentially obviously as this was a, a test to impress people, it didn't, but I could see in the future that that might be uh, legislated for that an AI would have to announce itself before it um, could engage in conversation. Yeah, so specific to that reaction, in after the backlash, Google did announce that not 100%, they would most likely uh, have the AI announce itself as artificial intelligence making a call to this real person. Um, but that's coming from the company itself in response to the public reaction rather than a government reaction. Do you guys think there's a particular innate human thing in wanting to talk to a human? Does it make a big difference if we talk to a robot and not someone else? I get, <clears throat> I get less emotional, I guess, when I talk to a robot, because I don't think they can connect with me at, on the emotional level yet. So I will go for efficiency instead of the bonding moment. If this becomes a widespread thing, do you think it might influence how people interact with other humans? If you were interacting with robots a lot, do you think you might start not emotionally engaging with other people as well. I think that's the case for right now, but in the future as the machine learning gets more and more sophisticated, they might be able to identify my emotion and get connected with me on the emotional level. So that will be a lot more complicated at that time because when, when the machine gets um, the human, human side, it's a lot harder for me to deal with uh, the communication with machines. 
Anyone else have any views on interacting with a human versus a robot? I could almost see it going the other way that, as Chen says, when machine learning and artificial intelligence becomes more advanced, our interactions will, with them will be very scripted and that they will feed back the emotions we're giving them in a way that is pleasant to us. If we're angry, they'll be, or if we're upset, they'll be sympathetic. They won't um, necessarily give an imperfect human response and that might make us less reluctant to talk to humans when our friends, family or someone working in a customer service role doesn't fully appreciate how angry we are or how upset we are, where a machine might be better at recognising that. That's, that's interesting because um, it's only when the... Ma so I was thinking about the time when machine has a personality as well and they want to react in their own way instead of just pleasing the audience. Um, but maybe it's just different stages of their development. I think it'll also, you know, it comes back to that space agey debate about robot rights, doesn't it? Will we build them to serve us, as it were, and to feed back a pleasing response? Um, or will it more be that they're respected on their own? Um, I can't remember the name of the robot, but is it um, Saudi Arabia have made her? Sophia. Sophia, they've made her She's a citizen. Okay, so that's all we have time for today. To close up this episode, we think the value add of AI technologies will be in their accessibility, efficiency and affordability on a mass scale. Um, the key risks will lie in the security issues, especially as more services such as finance start using um, AI softwares as a security feature and in the liability when things go wrong. Um, looking forward, we think that global variation in response will be really interesting, particularly poignant for us in Hong Kong is the variance between Chinese and European responses to data, so we'll be interested to see how that pans out. This is the first episode in our series we're doing on AI and its future, so look out for future episodes. Um, follow us on Typhoon Buzz, uh, iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for podcast episodes. Also, please visit our website at www.typhoonconsulting.com.